This is Kate Moorhead Carroll in the podcast, Find It. Today I want to talk to you about the Ten Commandments. Why the Ten Commandments, you might ask, aren't they boring and restrictive and old? Well, yes, they're old, but I wouldn't say they were boring at all. In fact, they form the bedrock of our Judeo-Christian tradition. And restrictive, actually, what's ironic about the Ten Commandments is that they are, in fact, liberating. And I'll tell you why. In order to begin to understand the meaning of the law that God gives us, let me give you a few metaphors or stories to help you understand. I've always wanted to learn how to swim. I mean, I know how to swim. I can stay above the water. I was thrown in a brook when I was little, so I'm pretty good at treading water, but I don't have any strokes, any form. I I just look like I don't know what I'm doing. So I went to the Jewish Community Center to the beautiful Olympic pool they have here in Jacksonville to get some swimming lessons. This young man agreed to give me a lesson, and we were to work on the backstroke. So I, I started doing the backstroke, and he, he showed me how to put my arms above my head in kind of a circular motion, and I'm going a- across the pool and feeling pretty good about myself, and all of a sudden, wham, I hit my head on the far end of the pool. I was shocked and hurt. My head hurt. My shoulders hurt. It was a big hit. And the teacher said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you, on the ceiling above the pool, there are flags that warn you when you're coming to the end of the pool so that you can slow down and stop. And I thought, well, now you tell me. Needless to say, I didn't go back to that instructor. And actually, I even haven't had a swimming lesson since. I'm kind of terrified of whacking my head again because he didn't show me the boundaries He didn't show me where to stop. The Ten Commandments show us where to stop so that we can swim freely in the space that we're given. Let me give you another analogy. Imagine that you had a toddler, a two-year-old, you know, the kind that can run around really fast and get into all kinds of trouble, and you have this toddler and you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon. So there's this steep cliff and your toddler could at any time run right off the cliff and die. So you're probably holding on to your toddler for dear life. You're probably terrified and having all kinds of ideas of what could happen if you let go. And your toddler, meanwhile, is mad because... He or she has no freedom. They can't run around. You're completely clinging to them. And you've restricted their movements. So what if someone made a fence, a beautiful, strong wrought iron fence with good slats that are very close together and in a circle, this fence encircled a playground. So you could go into the playground with your toddler And inside the playground, inside the fence, you could set your toddler free. Your toddler could run everywhere because your toddler was safe. The fence would prevent your toddler from running off the cliff. And so within the boundaries of that playground, your toddler could play, could be free, imaginative, 
do anything that he or she wanted to do, pretty much. That's what the law is. The law is an act of love. It's not an act of restriction because God is trying to punish us. God is trying to protect us because we are kind of silly creatures. Jesus used to compare us to sheep, and sheep can wander off a cliff too. We're kind of dumb. We do things that we shouldn't do. Our natures are a bit dark. Our natures are a bit wild. Um, And we, if not given rules, we can hurt each other and ourselves. So God gave us the Ten Commandments, and in fact, there are 613 commandments in the Hebrew Scriptures, but obviously we're not going to talk about all of those. But the Ten Commandments are the basic ones. God gives us this law to give us some boundaries, to keep us safe from ourselves, from our baser natures. God wants us to be free but safe as well. The Ten Commandments occur in two books in the Hebrew Scriptures. They occur in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. If you look carefully at the plot, the Hebrew people have been liberated from slavery in Egypt, and they are brought into this desert place, this liminal space where they are completely dependent on God for their survival. There is no other option but to rely on God. God provides them manna, which was this sticky substance, sweet, honey-like, to eat. And God provides them quail, birds. And God provides them water from oases or miracles, water coming out of rocks. When when Moses um, strikes the rock with his staff, But the people are very clearly totally dependent on God. There's no McDonald's, no fast food, no comfort. It's very clear who's in charge. So here they are, and they have reached the desert experience. And at the beginning of the journey, Moses goes up the mountain, and God reveals these ten words. In Hebrew, it's not really a commandment is a more restrictive translation. It's really 10 words. God gives Moses 10 words. And this is the one time where God actually writes on something. So most of the Bible is God inspiring human beings to write. But in this one instance, God actually does the writing on stone. God inscribes these words onto two stone tablets, which Moses will then bring down the mountain. And in fact, he'll break them because he's so upset with what the people have done. And then at the end of the story of the exodus of the desert journey, when the new generation has been born, not in the bondage of slavery, but in freedom, when this new generation is born, then as they're on the edge of the promised land, then God again gives them the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are kind of like bookends. They stand at the beginning and at the end of this desert journey in which a new civilization is created. A people are taken away from their setting of oppression and given this opportunity to invent themselves, to create their own order, their own civilization, to become themselves. 
We all need a time of quiet, a time of being away to discern who we are, not who everyone thinks we should be, not all the voices that crowd in our minds, but to be alone with God and determine who we are. So it's in this desert setting that these 10 words are given as a gift, as a gift, as that fence that will keep us safe. The first of the Ten Commandments begins with God saying who God is. I am the Lord your God, Yahweh. Remember the word Yahweh really sounds like our breath. We don't exactly know how the word was pronounced because we don't have vowels from the biblical Hebrew. But we do know that it sounds awful like our breath. And if that's the case, then every time we breathe, we're saying the name of God. And every time we breathe, God, the life force, is rushing into our lungs and out. The Hebrew people thought of the life of a person beginning when the child exits the womb and (gasps) gasps in the air, hopefully gives a lusty cry. And then when you're on the bedside with someone who's dying, hopefully of a very after a very long and fruitful life, and that person's breath just slowly goes away, that that breath is life, and it is God. It was all one word, spirit, soul, the divine presence, the life within. And as you see this old person's breath going away, their body moves from being a living being into being an object. It's quite something. It's an honor to be with someone who's dying. So Yahweh says, I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of bondage in Egypt. I am your life breath, but who acts in history and who has taken you from your setting of oppression in which you were defined and used and almost obliterated. I have brought you out of slavery and into freedom. I act in history. I get involved in your lives. I am here with you. And the first commandment then continues, you shall have no other gods but me. In a way, this is the most important commandment and the hardest. We have a lot of gods. And I'm not talking about Baal or Asheroth, the ancient pagan Canaanite gods. I'm talking about the gods of American culture. We have a lot of them. We worship money, success, privilege. We worship popularity. There are all kinds of things that we worship. Whatever you make as your first priority in life can become God if you're not careful. You can begin to worship it. You can begin to gear your entire life towards this this one thing that you feel that you need. Beauty. Net worth. Degrees. Education. They sound wonderful, all these things, but they can become gods if they become more important than our relationship with the one who created us. So keeping an eye on the things that we worship is part of the fundamental, essential fence that keeps us safe. Because when you worship something that's not God, you're going to end up all out of balance, chasing after something that 
doesn't matter. I have been with people on their deathbeds who have regretted chasing goals and spending their entire life trying to work harder or to make more money, trying to please someone who was never going to be pleased, and then waking up towards the end of life and realizing that they were not fully alive, that they were half asleep worshiping something that wasn't God, and how much they regret that. You shall have no other gods but me. If you want to be safe, if you want to be free, I'm the only one who can be there for you. I'm the only one who is worthy of worship. You shall not make for yourself any idol. Now, this is very closely related to the worship of other gods. Idols are usually concrete things that we want to get, that we believe that we will have happiness if we acquire an idol. An idol could be uh, a home on that is beautiful. It could be a car. It could be uh, clothing. It could be a, a vacation. Idols are those things that you get convinced if you have them, you'll be happy. In fact, our advertisements um, are designed to promote idolatry because basically what our commercials tell us is that if we acquire something, we'll be happy. If you just eat this hamburger, if you just use this shampoo, you'll be in ecstasy, you'll be beautiful and content, and it's all a lie. And you purchase these things, and you drive forward trying to acquire them, and you get them, and then you realize they actually don't provide you with the peace and the happiness that they promised. So then you chase after another idol, and this can go on all of our lives. In fact, worshiping other gods but this time in concrete form. Then you shall not invoke the name of the Lord your God in vain. What a strange thing. So here we have the third commandment, and it has to do with what comes out of our mouths. It doesn't have to do with murder or stealing. Those will come later, but it has to do with how we speak, and particularly how we refer to God, that we refer to God with reverence and honor, but not swear or deride God. I think we've kind of forgotten this commandment. I don't know. A lot of people use the name of God in vain. It's not a good idea. It's pretty clear here. I don't know exactly why, except for maybe that what comes out of our mouth is important, that the words that we say shape our souls, which means gossip, maligning. All of that is harmful, more important than we realize. What we say shapes who we are. Watch what comes out of your mouth. And then remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then God is commanding us to rest. Rest in our culture, in American culture, is an option And it often is something that makes you feel guilty, like you're not supposed to rest. Rest is for the lazy. We're supposed to be producing. Or maybe it's a reward, but it's not built into the practice of life. No, these commandments are saying that rest is a part 
an essential part of life itself, that you will not be your full self, you will not be productive, you will not be creative, you will not be generative unless you rest. That rest is as important as work and you must work rest into the fabric of your life. The Sabbath is a beautiful concept, a 24-hour period without work. The Orthodox Jews still really do this where they really don't work. They're not supposed to even do chores around the house. It's remarkable. What would it be like if we rested a full 24 hours? Or if you can imagine that, perhaps you could begin just to adopt some Sabbath time. A few hours. An hour a day. Remember the Sabbath. Don't forget that you're a living being that needs to regenerate, needs to refuel, needs to sit still and not produce, just like a field needs to lie fallow. You need downtime. Figure out what that looks like for you, but I imagine it has to do with unplugging from technology, not producing, sitting still. And allowing your mind to jump around, it'll hurt a bit to learn to rest at first. It involves sleep. But it is part of the Ten Commandments. It is not an option. We must learn to rest or we as a culture will go insane. And we are heading in that direction. Honor your father and your mother. This can be a difficult one for people who have been mistreated or abused by their parents or whose parents may not ever have been part of their lives. How do you do this? I think that this is referring to your whole ancestry, that you are to honor where you came from. And that doesn't mean condone. It doesn't even mean necessarily be in relationship with if that relationship is toxic or destructive. But to honor means to not hurt. It means to give thanks for, to acknowledge, to do what is right by someone. And if you have a relationship with someone who is abusive, it's very difficult to honor. Maybe the best way you can do that is to keep your distance, but pray for the person. But where you came from, your mother, your father, your genealogy is important. And there is something about it that is good because it created you, because God used that material to make you. So to honor your father and mother is to honor yourself. It is to honor what you came from. And it means forgiveness. And it means coming to terms with who you are, where you came from. It means letting go so that you can become the fullness of who you are. But acknowledging where you came from is important. The next commandments have to do with our relationships with one another. So we we started off with our relationship with God, loving God and not worshiping other gods and not invoking the name of the Lord God and having a Sabbath. But then we began to move into our relationship with each other, honoring our father and mother. And now very simple, very straightforward commandments, you shall not murder. Of course not. Our culture would be insane if we murdered. When it happens, it devastates us all. You shall not commit adultery. You live in monogamous, faithful, physical love with one person, and you do not deviate from that. Although our lust would have us do otherwise, 
it would create utter chaos and it ruins relationships. It's, it, people have gotten over it, but it is devastating to be intimate with someone outside of the sacrament of marriage or whatever partnership you are engaged in. But to be unfaithful is to undercut, undermine, and hurt the one that you love. Do not steal. Well, our economy certainly couldn't work if people stole regularly. Do not bear false witness. Truth must come from your mouth. Be very careful about that. It is okay not to answer. It is okay to say, I do not know. It is okay to say, I don't want to say. But we don't need to lie. The practice of lying, as you know, takes a lot of ingenuity and it often has to be followed up with more lies. It has a snowball effect. Try not to do that. It messes with your life. Boundaries and saying things that displease people may be necessary, of course. But lying is usually not a good idea, for it hurts the one who lies. And finally, and perhaps this commandment is the most broken in our culture, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covet. It's an old word meaning long after, look for, wish for, want. American culture is built on coveting. So we break this commandment all the time. Our economy is driven by our covetousness. We are designed to want stuff that we don't have and American capitalism wants us to want stuff we don't have because it wants us to buy it. So this is a really tough commandment for us to follow because we've been trained to want the things we don't have and to try to get them because that's what drives our economy. How in the world can we begin to do this one? I think we begin by giving thanks. The antidote to covetousness is gratitude, so practice gratitude, practice giving thanks, and practice the act of simplifying. I think we're going to need to learn to do this because our planet cannot contain us if we continue to act out of covetousness. We must learn not to covet or to reduce our coveting and to give thanks for what we have not what we don't have. And so you can see that these 10 words, these 10 commandments are a recipe for health, They're a recipe for wellness, a recipe for liberty, in fact, for peace of mind. God gave them to us as a gift, not as a punishment. They are that protective fence that encircles our playground so that we can be free to love to enjoy life, to give thanks. They are good.